Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live online at WVEW.org. And you are listening to Indigo Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. We, don't s- we didn't see Ralph in the, in the station today, so we're hoping he's all right and that he's not sick and that he's doing all right, and we miss him. <laughs> so this is Becca. I am one of the hosts of the show today. I'm a teacher in Springfield, Vermont. And I'm also a graduate of the Spark Teacher Training Program here in Brattleboro. My name is Nicole Awad. I am also a teacher up in Springfield, Vermont um, at the high school. And I'm also a (laughs) graduate of Spark. (laughs) And you're listening to Indigo Radio, Deepening Understanding, Making Connections. We're on the air every Sunday at noon, and we're a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Indigo Radio, and our show is recorded and posted to SoundCloud and the iTunes Store. Our show also replays at 3 p.m. on Tuesdays on WVEW. I'm sorry, on um, the radio station here, 107.7 FM. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests and not the radio station. So a couple weeks ago, Nick and I went to the... U.S.-Mexico border, specifically in Arizona, Nogales, and we went for School of America's Watch. Um, They put on their third annual border encuentro. This was a weekend of solidarity with those who have been disappeared, murdered, and imprisoned by Border Patrol and ICE, Immigration Customs and Enforcement. And we went to learn about what's happening with others um, both sides of the border of Nogales and Sonora, Mexico. So when we arrived down there, um, just some highlights from the weekend. When we arrived down there, we uh, took a taxi from the airport to our hotel, and we had a gentleman who was our taxi driver, and he was telling us about um, what the changes at the border. Um, and so we had had this conversation with, um, with him and he also offered to um, bring us down to Nogales the next day. That's where um, a lot of the events were taking place, but he was talking about the militarization of the border. He showed us the bases when we came in. He showed us the buses, the white buses that you can't see into or out of, um, that people are picked up at the border, which is about an hour away from Tucson, and then brought to Tucson to military bases. And the huge like complex, like it took up what would be, you know, blocks and blocks and blocks of a city Mm. um, without a sign. But you could clearly tell that there was something happening within those fences that Mm. didn't, is not in the interest of humans. Yeah. And so we also then went down to Nogales. We went to a detention center. um, And we're going to hear from some some organizers of the Encuentro um, that Becca has interviewed. And so we just wanted to give you a little bit of an idea of the demands of the Encuentro. Um, and so there were five of them that were listed into in, I'm sorry, in the program. The first was an end to U.S. economic, military, and political intervention in Latin America and the closure of SOA WINSIC. And that's a school, which we'll hear a little bit more about. It's a military school run by um, the U.S. military Becca, do you want to read number two? Sure. An end to Plan Merda and the Alliance for Prosperity. 
The third is demilitarization and divestment of borders. Number four, an end to the racist systems of oppression that criminalize and kill migrants, refugees, and communities of color. And lastly, number five, respect, dignity, justice, and the right to self-determination of communities. So we're going to go to a song break, and we're going to come back. We'll come back to um, to an interview with Devera. Um, I'm sorry, with Maria Luisa. But so first, we're going to play Rebel Diaz Cantemos, and Rebel Diaz was also down at the Encuentro, and we'll give you a little bit more information about that when we come back. You're listening to Indigo Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Que 
guerrero canta voz de esperanza Hoy se levanta la unión del pueblo Es como se avanza la descendiente de guerreros que no se casan La lucha es contra el imperio La CIA y todos sus perros Asesinan a los líderes y no es misterio Así se apoderan del hemisferio En El Salvador ya no jodieron No metieron dólares y no vendieron Por no escucharon señor Romero Ahora nos toca empezar de cero Una nueva oportunidad para poder luchar por libertad Luchar, hacer todo, respetar La guerra contra el pueblo tiene que cesar Como la fiesta ofrendamos amor y vida Recogiendo cosecha de quienes hacen Sembraron lucha con su semilla Como la comandanta Ramón o Dolores Huerta Las mariposas o Bartolina Sisa Ni nuestro cuerpo ni nuestra tierra Serán el botín para tu conquista Welcome back. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections. That was Rebel Diaz Cantemos. We were dancing here in the mm -hmm. studio. <laughs> and I've been listening to that song ever since Rebel Diaz played it. Um, the two brothers um, played a, a concert at the, the border fence. So the stage was on the Mexican side and people were on the, the U.S. side listening to their music. And I think it's important to note that last year at the Encuentro, they had a stage on both sides of the border fence. And when we say fence, we're not talking about, it's a wall with mm -hmm. some holes in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but this year, the U.S. side would not allow for the stage to be set up. And there was actually a, another like iron fence partitioning out the space where the stage used to be to make sure that no one was supposed to go closer to that border wall so whether or not we believe our small actions make a difference we certainly are agitating the powers that be right so becca's going to introduce us to this this interview that she did um this yeah week. i talked with maria luisa rosal who's an organizer with soa watch and we do an introduction in the interview so i'll just jump right into it Hello, Maria Luisa, can you hear me? I can, Becca, how are you? I'm good, thanks. We have Maria Luisa Rosal, a field organizer with SOA Watch, the School of America's Watch, as well as one of the people who helped put on the border encuentro this year. Thank you so much for joining us on Indigo Radio. Well, thank you so much for having us. Maria Luisa, could you start out by telling us a little bit about why you are involved in School of America's Watch? Of course. I um, actually was born in Guatemala during the height of the internal armed conflict, which was a 36-year conflict um, from 1960 to the signing of the Peace Accords in 1996. I've lived in the United States since 1985, and the reason my family had to flee here in the context of the Cold War, in the context of the conflict, um, in the context of mass U.S. Um, congressional support for the Dirty Wars in Latin America um, was the 1983 disappearance of my father. And so in 1985, when we fled here, um, we later would apply for political asylum. And so a lot of what is U.S. intervention historically and currently is definitely not lost um, 
on me in even having grown up here in the United States. And so me being involved in this grassroots hemispheric movement um, is a way of essentially, you know, contributing your grain of grain of sand to um, to stopping this kind of intervention. Um, families shouldn't have to live under these conditions anywhere in the world. Absolutely. Well, we hope with the continued work that that will no longer happen to other families. This has happened to your family. Thank you. And and, and unfortunately, these these um, these kinds of interventions continue to happen, so it makes our work even more relevant today. Um, yeah. Absolutely. We're seeing that right now, actually, in our current moment. It's in the, in the media more than it has been with the caravan, so it's even more important that this story is told. Absolutely. Um, and just on, on that note, one of the, one of the things that, that, um, that's important about the caravan is that it really highlights that there's, you know, when you ask the question of, like, why are people coming? Why are people fleeing? And you start getting closer to the, to the, to the underpinnings of, of what intervention is, et cetera, you see that it's nothing new. And so we see, like, this caravan is a continuation of, you know, the, the result of U.S. involvement in large part in in, in countries in Latin America and in the northern part of Central America specifically. Yeah. That's actually what I wanted to have you share with our listeners a little bit more is the history of, U.S. intervention as it pertains to the School of Americas, which is now WINSEC. Yes. Um, even though the, the name changes, you rightly pointed out, Becca, the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation name that that is hard to remember, first of all. Um, the name change came in, in late 2000, and the school reopened in 2001 with this new name. But the School of the Americas has been around since um, just after the Second World War, and it's paid through our U.S. tax dollars and maintained through our U.S. tax dollars. It's a it's a U.S. Army training school for Latin American military and police, and now Border Patrol, U.S. Border Patrol, um, and the school itself really reads like a who's who's list of some of the worst human rights violators in the region, um, not only during the 1960s, 70s, 80s, what's known as the dirty wars in Latin America. So you have not only the civil war in El Salvador, for example, but you also have like Operation Condor and like the coups that were happening throughout the region. Um, but also you have um, dictators that were, that were trained at that school, almost a dozen, as well as um, you know, the UN Truth Commission report in El Salvador, for example, that was released in 1992, really reveals that a huge percentage of the Salvadoran military were actually trained at the um, School of the Americas um, that's now been relocated to its actual location, Fort Benning, Georgia. It was originally um, in the the Panama Canal Zone, and once the Canal Zone Treaty ended, um, it was relocated to its current location. Um, to date, about 83, 84,000 soldiers and police have been trained at the School of the Americas, and so 
um, when when the School of the Americas watch movement started to not only close the school but call attention to the atrocities being committed in the name of U.S. taxpayers, in in the name of the United States. Um, you know, it was, it was to shine a light on, on the atrocities being committed. And since then, it's just been growing uh, since 1990 when the movement was started. Yeah, thank you so much. And for our listeners, I hope they can do further information and further study about the School of America if they're not already knowledgeable about it because it's such a important aspect to understand the history but also to understand what's happening today throughout the world. And so um, SOA Watch has typically, I think it was 22 years, if I'm not mistaken, was meeting at Fort Benning, where the School of America is, is held in Georgia. And recently, the movement has decided to shift their largest annual con- convene- convergence to the U.S.-Mexico border. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why that is. Yeah, so starting in 1990, on the one-year anniversary of what's known as the UCA, the University of Central America Massacre in El Salvador, which is the massacre of six Jesuit priests, along with the housekeeper Elba Ramos and her daughter, Selena. They were brutally murdered on this campus. And so on the one-year anniversary is when School of the Americas Watch was essentially born. And every year, close to that date, November 16th, um, year after year, for 25 years, we would gather at the case before Benning to, to have a space of education, direct action, civil disobedience, protest music, um, and just really coming together to say, essentially not in our name. And with the, you know, with the growth of the movement also came, like, expanding conversations around, you know, what does solidarity mean in these times? And um, so in 2015, um, one thing that we would do in parallel but not at the same time as the annual convergences at the gates of Fort Benning are our spring days of action, which are lobby days that we have in Congress to really push for, you know, legislative change. Um, so we're, we're not only doing grassroots work, but grassroots work in the halls of Congress. And out of these um, spring days of action in 2015, we were having these very intentional, very serious conversations around what should our solidarity and what could our solidarity look like in these times? And one of the things that came out of these conversations in which also the late um, indigenous link environmental social movement leader, Berta Gracidis, was present. Um, she was actually in D.C. to receive the, the Goldman Environmental Prize that same during that same period. And so she was part of this conversation um, and it's really important for us to, to, to uplift that too, not only because of who she uh, was and, and what her organization, Pupin, represents, but also um, highlighting that part of our strength within SOA Watch is we keep our ear to the ground with, with different social movements throughout Latin America. Um, and that's one of the ways we see our solidarity. Um, and out of these conversations came the idea that in order to talk about U.S. foreign policy, we need to talk about what has come of that. And so said in other words, naming the mass migration we see today and historically the, the, the rise in immigration we saw with refugees from Central America in the 80s, 
we need to name U.S. foreign policy, U.S. intervention, whether it's political, economic, or military, as root causes of migration. And these are conversations that should never be separate from each other. And so in order to really model that in our, in our work, we decided to literally plant our feet on the ground at the U.S.-Mexico border in Nogales, Arizona, Nogales, Sonora. This came after almost a year of intentional conversations within the movement, within our staff, collective, within the greater local groups and um, other affinity groups, as well as partners and allies and border communities themselves. Um, and so, and that said, I really want to emphasize that we, um, in going to the border, we really hope to shine a light on the work that's already been done at the border. These border communities have been resisting um, militarization and these low-intensity wars um, for decades. And in a way, we were able to combine and uplift our, our collective analysis in, in being there now in our third year. All right, welcome back. That was um, Maria Luisa. Um, she is a an organizer of the Encuentro at the Border, um, organized by SOA Watch, and she talked to us a little bit there about the history of SOA Watch, but she also talked about the border, the U.S.-Mexico border, and mass migration to that border, as we see with the caravan at, at this particular time, um, and U.S. foreign policy being the real driving force of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people um, coming to our border to seek asylum. Mm -hmm. So what I thought would be um, useful at this particular point was to talk about Border Patrol because that is who is at the border, right? That's who is the active military force at the border. And so it's important, I think, for us to remember that um, the border between the U.S. and Mexico, first of all, hasn't always been a border. <laughs> right. Um, but this border is militarized when there is no military threat mm -hmm. from Mexico. There's no, there's not Mexican troops amassed at the border waiting to, to invade the U.S. Right. This is this is a border that's being militarized, um, and its construction is entirely based on preventing the movement of civilian people, ordinary people, people who wanna, um, who want jobs, who want better jobs, who wanna have a better life. Although there are um, <coughs> created justifications, uh, like the created threat of justifications of why the militarization, especially now, is important. And that ties into the Plan Merida, which was one of the demands um, of the Encuentro to stop. It's the increased militarization of the border that was started under George W. Bush as a new security cooperation initiative between Mexico and the U.S., to quote-unquote combat drug trafficking and organized crime. And so that took place after 9-11? Mm. Yep. And so that is also another wave of, um, of militarization that takes place not only at the U.S. border, the U.S.-Mexico border, but borders all across the world. Mm -hmm. So particularly, though, U.S. Border Patrol um, as an agency was created in 1924, and it originally consisted of 450 agents, so it was pretty small to start off with. 
And surprisingly, it was first stationed at the Canadian border. Hmm. And that was because um, U.S. Border Patrol was attempting to prevent the entrance of Asian immigrants who were at that time the target of immigration policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just so important to really link this construction of a border and the militarization of a border to immigration policies and how that the importance of the border has shifted over time. And, you know, you just brought up which bo- which border of the U.S. has been a primary focus has shifted because of immigration policies, mm-hmm. because from 1942 to 1964, there was something in the U.S. called the Bracero Program, which recruits me- which recruited Mexicans to come to do agricultural work in the U.S. So they were um, welcoming um, Mexican migrants to cross over this human constructed border between the U.S. and Mexico, which, again, we know doesn't really exist since the U.S. stole half of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, these people were recruited and they were welcomed and they were brought in, given visas, brought to work as migrant labor, and then allowed to go back freely cross this quote-unquote border as they wished until there was no longer a need for the Bracero program and until um, the, I would say the owners of industry realized that if they had an exploitable workforce, meaning someone who didn't have quote-unquote legal protections in the U.S., that there would be more money to be made. And that's when we see kind of the, um, not right away in 1964, but Slowly after that, the criminalization of crossing the border was implemented. And so that kind of coincides with the shift, right? There's a shift from the northern border to the southern border. And particularly around the 90s, um, and in 1990 there were only about 3,000 Border Patrol agents, but in the mid-1990s we see a dramatic increase. And what's interesting is connecting that to NAFTA, the Mm. free trade agreement between Canada, um, the U.S., and Mexico, and this new need to prevent people from crossing the border. And so what ends up happening... Can I say something really quickly, Nick? I wonder if it is actually about preventing or, again, just making it a criminalization because we see that... um, I don't know. I just wonder sometimes, like what the real purpose of it is. I don't think that the U.S. doesn't want migrant labor here. I would say that they don't want migrant labor here, but I would also say that there is a huge shift in the numbers of people that are unemployed in Mexico after NAFTA because of the, like, the market is flooded with corn, right? And Mm -hmm. so all corn farmers in Mexico start to lose their land. Mm -hmm. Um, Or pig farming. That was another, like, huge wave of... Mexican farmers that lost their land. And so people are losing their land. And so there's an increased number of mm-hmm. people who are looking to leave Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I'm, and I'm sure the rest of um, Central America as well with, in response to violence. Um, but I think that, yeah, I would agree with you that there is this increased criminali- criminalization because, detention cent- because of detention centers at the border, mm-hmm. which we'll also talk about. But I think also that NAFTA changed the uh, the economic relationships um, on either sides of the of the border so what's interesting to note at this particular point is that the tactics of the u.s government shift and so 
they realize that people are crossing like in a place like Nogales, where it's a city. And the city is both on the Mexican side of the border and on the US side of the border. And so people are crossing in the city. So they increase the amount of militarization in those cities. So there were two operations, particularly um, Operation Hold the Line and Operation Gatekeeper that really increased the amount of militarization that was taking place inside of cities where people were having an easy time crossing. And people are forced now to cross in this crazy environment of the Sonora Desert. Um, and so lots and lots and lots of people are dying mm. just in their attempts to cross the border. I believe it was, a, it's a, was it when we were at the Encuentro, and I, unfortunately the numbers probably increased, there's 123 who have been um, killed in the desert crossing in the Sonora Desert. Mm. And a lot of the people that they find in the Sonora Desert, they can't identify. Mm. And later on, we will hear from a mother who was actually at the Encuentro. She talks about, um, yeah, we can play it now. Why don't yeah. we just play it now? Okay, great. She talks about her son and what happened to her son being disappeared. So why don't we play it now? I uh, being desperate as a mother. My son has a name, he has a family, he is a person. Why all of this indifference at the disappearance of our children? Duré dos años sin ayuda. Me encontraba puertas porque no hay información para una madre que pierde un hijo en el desierto. I spent two years without any answer because there's no way to get answers for, to a mother who has lost a child in the desert. A los dos años se abrió una puerta para mí. Gracias a Dios. Two years later, there was a door open for me. Thank God. Fue la puerta que me abrió Colibri. Colibri me dio la esperanza. It was the door that Colibri opened for me. Colibri me gave hizo, me hope. Me hizo un ADN. Colibri took my DNA. Y me ha tratado con respeto y con amor humano. Se interesa por los seres humanos de verdad. They've treated me with respect and with love. They care about the people, the humans. Estoy sumamente agradecida porque hoy puedo decir que tengo más oportunidad de encontrar mi hijo. Lo amo a mi hijo y lo quiero en casa. I have hope now because I have a greater opportunity of finding my son. I love my son and I want him home. Busco justicia divina y justicia del ser humano porque tanta indiferencia al dolor de tantos miles y miles, miles de seres humanos que están muriendo por cruzar una frontera. ¿A cuál es la intención demoníaca de que tanto ser humano esté muriendo por causa 
una barrera. I'm looking for justice. I'm looking for people to be considered people. Why all of this indifference for people because of a border wall? Doy muchas gracias a todos los medios que se han interesado en este caso. Doy muchas gracias a Katy Colibri. I want to thank the media who has been interested in this case. I want to thank uh, Colibri. En los momentos más difíciles, Katy me abrazó y lloró conmigo y sentí el amor humano de esta mujer y de Colibri. In my most difficult times, Kathy hugged me and I felt warmth and I felt love from this person from Colibri. All right, welcome back to Indigo Radio. And that was a mother speaking at the border about her son having disappeared in the desert. I can't even imagine the pain of losing any loved one to that horrific experience. And you don't know what happened to them. Mm. Um, but you know that all they wanted was to find a better life in the hopes that they could meet the, what all humans should have, <laughs> dignity in their lives, a chance to provide for their families. And so crossing the border without papers has become an extremely costly endeavor, not only in monetary terms, but also in terms of human life. Between 1994, when the border, border was increasingly being militarized because of NAFTA, through 2006, over 4,000 migrants, men, women, and children, have died attempting to cross. And I think um, we talked about it earlier that you know, just 123 this year alone in the Sonora Desert. And that's just one part of the, of the border between the U.S. and Mexico. And then our government also is um, actively pushing people to these routes mm. that are inhuman. Mm -hmm. And then at this particular moment, there's people who are at the, the proper entrance that are getting tear gas shot at them. And so what is it that is going to make us um, stand up and say, no, mm -hmm. no more of this, mm -hmm. no more death, no more detention. Um, and that's something we haven't even talked about, right, is the amount of detention that's taking place. I think that's a good place for us to go to a song break because we do want to hear Devra. Um, this, what's the song, Becca? This song is Rebel Diaz, I'm an Alien. And at the... Com uh, the I always call a concert a conference. I think I go to too many <laughs> conferences <laughs> at the concert on the border, the U.S.-Mexico border where Rebel Diaz played. He told us a story about um, how this song was formulated. So basically what he told us was that when his mother received um, a green card, when their mother received a green card, he looked at the green card and it says on it, uh, resident alien and so he went to the mirror to look at himself and he was like wait a minute am I an alien am I green is my skin <laughs> green do I have an antenna um, so they created this song they used uh, a clip from sting but the song is and he ma they made sure to have us repeat it I am a legal alien mm -hmm. let's right. hear it
Strawberry galaxy, that will be the illest. Welcome to my world, the people's universe. Let's have a conversation that'll make your soul search earth. Mother, it feels good to say things that uplift the hood. For what it's worth, we've been here for a while. Follow the moon, take a walk for a mile In the shoes of the man that picked your fruit I want access to schools, I don't want to join the troops You came to my country, you brought the dictator Gave him money and told him pay me later So taste the tomato, tomato, whatever The students, the farmers, working together Palante y mirante, no a la guerra Mundo Mapuche, siempre, forever Rebel Diaz. Whoa, I'm an alien. <laughs> I'm a legal alien. All right, welcome back. So the next segment of our show that we're going to play is an interview with Devora Gonzalez, and she is also one of the organizers of the SOA Watch Encuentro, and she's going to um, talk to us a little bit about the weekend and more information about um, the border and about detention. And I just have to say, Divra was pretty amazing at the border. Yeah, she, she was. gave some really great speeches, and I wish that we could play the clips, but we'll have to add them on or play them for you another time. Devra Gonzalez, a field organizer with SOA Watch, and also one of the people who collaborated to put on the border in Quintro. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So one of the first things that we did at the SOA Watch Encuentro this year was we started at, with a rally at Milcor USA and then um, also had another rally at the Eloy Detention Center. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about each of these and why it was important to oppose both of these places. Of course. Um, well, Milcor USA is a manufacturing company that produces grenade launchers that are sold to the Mexican military. And these grenade launchers have been um, linked with, you know, the deaths and the disappearances of the people here in Mexico. And then at the same time, you know, these are the conditions that are created within the country that push people out, at which point, you know, they face a militarized border along the U.S.-Mexico border, and then once they are detained, 
for example, in Arizona, they're taken to the Eloy Detention Center, which is one of the largest detention centers and one of the deadliest detention centers in the nation. So we see that this is like the main link between both places. This is the main link between both places, right? That one of them produces the conditions in which people are forced to flee and the other one benefits from maintaining and incarcerating people that have already fled. Thank you so much. I'm wondering, do you know how many people are currently being held at the Lori Detention Center and what their conditions are like? Well, I don't know how many people specifically are detained there. I do know that Border Patrol, as of a few years ago, had a quota of 34,000 beds that needed to be filled nationwide in, in detention centers. Um, but the conditions within EOA detention center are deplorable. Um, they, this is, you know, lack of water, overcrowding, situations with lights, et cetera. So there's, like, the conditions are not comfortable for people, actually, and so much so that there have people that have died within these detention centers. So, you know, how do we... How can we think that the conditions in there are anywhere comfortable or anywhere like good if people are are dying within them? Absolutely. It was um one of the things that I learned most from and was most struck by is being at the detention center and just realizing like people who have had to flee are now being treated so inhumanely here. It's it's really horrific. I I completely agree. You know, I mean, as of a few years ago in 2014, we were doing some of these documentations. At the time, there were families that were asking for political asylum were being jailed together, and so mothers were not separated from these children within detention centers as it is now. But when we were doing this abuse documentation and these were short-term conditions, um, short-term detentions throughout the Arizona border, um, we learned from these families that in those places, like, they never turned off the lights. So while there were like many, many families in one room, overcrowded rooms, with the bathroom, like with one bathroom to share, for example, the lights were never turned off and they were being detained for days at a time. So then when we asked them how long they were in detention, they didn't quite know if it was three days, five days, longer because they lost track of time since the lights were never turned off. Wow, that's really disgusting. I a think. form of torture. Yeah. yeah. Right. It, that's exactly what it is. It is mm-hmm. a form of torture mm-hmm. in which not only adults are being exposed to this, which doesn't make it any better, but also children, right? Mm-hmm. Children as, lo- as young as six months old or, or younger, you know? Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that information with us. 
The other thing Great. that was thank you, thank you for attending. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that was discussed a lot at the board in Quento, we were waiting for the verdict against Lonnie, Lonnie Schwartz, who was murdering Jose Antonio in 2012. Can you give us some updates on what is happening now? Right. Um, so a little bit of background information is that Jose Antonio was murdered on October 2012 by Lonnie Schwartz. It took a really long time before anyone even got access to the video. Like, the public hasn't even seen that video um, of what happened. And there was a trial that happened earlier this year where Lonnie Schwartz was found not guilty of second-degree murder, but the jury was hung on the lesser charges. So then just recently, there was a trial again um, to charge Lonnie Schwartz for involuntary manslaughter, and voluntary manslaughter. The verdict, which came on, I believe it was Wednesday, after the encuentro, is that Lonnie Schwartz was found not guilty of the lesser charge in voluntary manslaughter, and the verdict was hung on the higher charge of voluntary manslaughter. And so what we were waiting for was for December 11, initially, that was going to be the status hearing to see if the, the state was going to go ahead and prosecute Lonnie Schwartz a third time for that, for that verdict, sorry, for that charge of voluntary manslaughter. And it just came out a day or two ago that they're completely dropping the charges and that the U.S. is not going to prosecute against its agent Lonnie Schwartz our third time, which of course means that Lonnie Schwartz has just murdered a child in Mexico, right, because Lonnie Schwartz was in the United States and shot across the wall into Mexico murdering Jose Antonio um, and is getting away with getting away with doing it, right? And that's really what this shows is the impunity of Border Patrol agents to murder without getting, you know, without repercussions. And even breaking international laws, I mean, if someone did that the opposite way, that that would not happen, right? Like, there's no way that someone could do that. Um, and so it just really shows the hypocrisy of the United States and the impunity in which Border Patrol agents are allowed to act. In comparison, though, there is um, a person that's a volunteer with No More Deaths. His name is Scott Warren, who's facing, at, at most, 20 years in jail for his humanitarian aid work of leaving water, and of, you know, what No More Deaths does, which is leave water in the desert, offer medical aid um, for people as well. So we see, on one hand, the military, the impunity in which border patrol agents are able to act, and then on the other hand, the criminalization that's happening with those that are providing humanitarian aid. Wow, that's such a stark difference that really um, helps to contextualize the militarization of the border. And I'm wondering if you could say more. Those are two examples of the increased militarization of the border. I'm wondering if you could say more about um, what you think the purpose of this militarization is. 
what I see, what I think the land side. What do you think the purpose of this increased militarization along the U.S.-Mexico border is? Well, it, I think it's for economic means, really, at the end of it, because, for example, how much profit, like millions and millions of dollars of profit are made daily by having people in detention centers, right? There's also Operation Streamline, for example, that is a um, like a fast-track criminalization process of migrants where in Tucson alone, up to 70 migrants go up to a judge Monday through Thursday and every other Friday at 1.30 at the federal courthouse. And these 70 migrants go in front of a judge and have an entire judicial process in a day where that's unthinkable, right? Where you can go see a judge, you're going to have trial, and you're going to be sentenced all in one day. It does not happen in when there's, like, due, like due process. And so to think that you have 70 migrants, the fastest time that that has happened in to sentence all these 70 people is 30 minutes. In Tucson, 30 minutes. And so this takes away any possibility of having, of fighting for political asylum in the future, because once you're put into these proceedings, it's almost impossible to get out. And the result of which is maybe less time in detention, because the maximum of time is 180 days. However, you come out with a criminal record. So now... You have a mark on this record for crossing into the United States, which completely erases and takes away any possibility of of being able to stay in the United States with like with citizenship, for example. So if there was like some kind of immigration reform, they would not qualify for it. And then it also feeds into this rhetoric of, you know, we're not looking for any, like, we're not after the immigrants, we're after criminals. Well, if you have these people that are being criminalized for crossing into the United States, now, they fit within that rhetoric, right? So there's millions and millions of dollars that are being made for criminalizing this border. And at the same time, there are policies that are happening further south, for example, um, projects of like hydroelectric dams, for example. There's um, a plan called Plan Frontera Sur, which is uh, an extension of the Medida Initiative. And Plan Frontera Sur was suggested in 2014. It started being, like they started planning it in 2013, but along with this was proposals in um, between Guatemala and Mexico of building, you know, hydroelectric dams, mining, um, gas, I think it's petroleum gas. Um, anyway, like, so um, extraction industry, right? That was one of the things, one of the aspects of this plan from Vera Sur, right? So what is made from, like, extracting resources from the earth besides money, right? What is made from having people in detention centers except, like, besides money, right? So we live in a capitalist society where that is the greed of capitalism is guiding beyond the human need. 
and beyond the humanization of of children, for example. I was reading an article where it said that a six-year-old Salvadoran boy presented himself in front of a judge without a lawyer. Like, how is a six-year-old supposed to know immigration law of the United States? Wow. I mean, our practices, the practices of the United States are completely disgusting and guided by financial means, by financial gains. Hmm. Yeah. I didn't know about, um, what is it, Plan Frontera de Sur? Is that what it's called? Plan Frontera Sur, right? Sur, yeah, yeah, wow. It's a southern border plan. Mm. That's the translation of it. Yeah. So it's there's so much always happening along the border, so many deaths and so much destruction that's happening because of the U.S. militarization. How do you continue to have energy to do this work in fighting and resisting? Well, I think that's just part of our existence, right? When all of us are being oppressed in one way or another, and at the same time, we all participate in that in one way or another, right? By paying our taxes, for example. Our taxes are the ones that are funding the things that are happening along the border and along all of the borders, right? Um, so I think that our existence alone is our resistance. Like, there is no way that, for example, I can, you know, as a woman that whose family migrated, you know, a few years ago, it's like, there's no way that I can separate myself from what is happening because that is that is our lives, right? So we are all impacted, and I just don't think that there's – I think that it is our responsibility at this point to continue to call out these injustices because if not for ourselves, for our children, because they're the ones that are inheriting this, this world, right, and in its conditions, and – I think we just need to assure that that we're changing things for for the little ones, whether they're ours, whether they're our relatives, whether we don't know them, right? Um, I think personally that's where my energy comes from is it's for the people. It's from the people, you know, it's from those families that are currently being paired apart. You know, one of the things that I want to mention is that family separation has been happening for a very long time, right? Um, when a mother is forced to leave her child in in her country of birth and migrate to the United States, that is family separation, right? It's at a point where it's incredibly deplorable to have children in jail. That that also is another aspect of family separation, Um but I think it's really important that we continue to make some kind of justice, right? And that we continue to demand justice for Jose Antonio and, and not forget about him, right? Sixteen times he was shot in the back. Um, ten, I believe ten of those shots, like, actually hit him. But sixteen shots were fired, one for every year of his life. And Lonnie Shorts gets to go ahead and... Is, you know, what's going to happen? Is he going to be back at the border? 
doing the same thing over and over. Right? So I think that's that's why we need to continue fighting. It's it it, it does get exhausting and it does uh, it hurts a little bit, you know, when when you think about the human need, about the human the human life, like it it hurts. But that is why we continue doing it because Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. That was Debra Gonzalez. She was one of the organizers of the Border Encuentro, organized by SOA Watch, that took place on November 16th and 17th in um, Tucson, Arizona, and in Nogales, Arizona, and also in Nogales, Mexico. So we appreciate her sharing all of that information with us. You can find out more information. Um, there's a ho- there's a show, a Democracy Now! show on Jose uh, Antonio, his mother and his grandmother speaking after the, the court decides to um, let Lonnie Schwartz go free. And um, before we go to our last song break, I just wanted to mention the work of Puente, which is an organization based in uh, Arizona, in Phoenix, Arizona. They were one of the um, organizations, many of the organizations that are already doing work along the border that Maria Luisa um, mentioned that SOA Watch Now is working in partnership. And Puente is an organization of grassroots migrant justice, um, or it's a movement of grassroots migrant justice organizations. And... They have been doing a lot of work against the ICE, against Border Patrol, but also um, they were big um, in getting rid of SB 1070 and um, holding um, Ho- Joe jo, uh, Par- Arpaio, Arpaio yeah, mm-hmm. accountable for the horrific and um, racial, racial profiling laws that he was putting into place. And they also do a lot of work just supporting the needs of people who are detained as well as um, helping families reach their loved ones in detention centers. So thank you all for joining us today. We do encourage you to go down to the Encuentro next year um, in November. And we really learned so much and we appreciate so much what the organizers and all the people who brought all their energy to the border fence Um, to workshops, to the detention center, um, singing to people inside. And, of course, um, we will keep on learning and teaching and fighting for the people. We're going to go out with a song that is actually um, us as a group marching to the detention center, singing to the people inside. And it's by Peace Poets. The song is called Condor. Y nuestros cuerpos y espíritus para demostrar que nosotros vemos la verdad. We see the truth. They can't hide behind those walls. They can't hide behind offices and they can't hide behind their lives. And every time that we raise our voices, every time that we march together, those lies crumble just a little bit more.
tenemos otra canción para cantar y lo va, la vamos a hacer en Spanglish. <laughs> Quizás quizá la conocen. I'm going to ask y'all to repeat after me. We're going to work our multilingual skills. And it goes like this. This was a song that was written for moments like this. It goes, Oye mi gente, Oye mi gente, Traemos la fuerza, Traemos la fuerza, La libertad, La libertad, Es mi única bandera, Es mi única bandera, Rise up my people, Rise up my people, My condors, my eagles, My condors, my eagles, No human being, no human being will ever be illegal. Will ever be illegal. Woo! And we would like to raise up the truth, the sacred truth that comes from indigenous wisdom. We, we had a blessing from Amber earlier. And we also want to say we have seen that the truth of our movements are tied into recognizing what has happened on this land. And that's what we mean when we say and we sing about the condor and the eagle. We're talking about the unification of indigenous people all throughout what, what we call and what they call the Americas. And so if you feel that in your spirit, cante con nosotros. Oye mi gente, traemos la fuerza, la libertad es mi única bandera. Condos, my people, my condos, my eagles, no human being will ever be. Oye, oye mi gente, traemos la fuerza, la libertad es mi única bandera. Condos, my people, my condos, my eagles. Oh, my God, my eagles. 
human being will ever Who had been celebrated pretty much widespread celebrations of them as heroes.